Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Sideros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Hi, great to be here, Ben. Well, Trina, you did a great job last week. We talked a bit about policy issues and some of the new federal spending on the pandemic and what it's going to mean for providers. But this week, we actually need to kind of get back to some of the here and now. So let's tick through the top issues that we're seeing for the week that's affecting the health industry and consumers. Let's start with healthcare jobs. And there's some really surprising, if not maybe troubling numbers out there. Get us into what the healthcare jobs look like right now. Yeah, I I don't know when the last time we might have seen a report like this might have been. Every single year, for as long as we can probably remember, there have been more healthcare jobs in the December of any particular year than there were in the December of the previous year. And this year is an exception. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data that came out just recently, the Employer Situation Report, they show us the number of jobs for healthcare and social assistance. So these are mostly provider jobs. These are doctor's office jobs, outpatient care center jobs, medical and diagnostic laboratory jobs, hospital jobs, and also nursing care facility jobs. And if you look at these data, you see that in December 2020, there were actually fewer of these jobs than there were in December 2019 before the pandemic. Overall, we have seen a shedding of jobs, net jobs in this area. And I would say that in particular, we're seeing this in nursing care facilities, which continue to shed jobs month after month after month. And of course, these are where our most vulnerable seniors are and where an enormous impact from the pandemic has been felt, both in terms of residents of long-term care centers passing away due to COVID-19 and also staff becoming sick and passing away due to COVID-19. So we see this trend over the year. And it's just sort of an astonishing number to see us finish the year with fewer provider jobs than we had a year before. Well, the other place we can look at some data is around the question of the flu. And I think when we were maybe discussing this several weeks back, there was a a question of what is the world going to look like as we move into flu season at the same time as the pandemic? Well, we're starting to get some numbers back on flu season. And what does it tell us? Yeah, yeah. So I I suppose we could say that this is some cautious reason for optimism. We had a lot of concern over the year about the possibility of a twindemic, the possibility that we would have ERs overrun with folks with flu and COVID-19, and that you'd have these two respiratory viral illnesses sort of flooding our hospitals at the same time. And that's just not coming to be so far. We're early in influenza season, and yet right now, The flu activity tracked by the CDC is very low. It's low to minimal in almost every state. If you look at previous years and when we would start to see influenza deaths, that would have been toward the end of each year. And toward the end of 2020, we we have not seen a lot of flu deaths. We haven't seen a lot of flu at all. We've seen a ton of COVID-19 deaths, of course, but flu we are not seeing. One sort of great statistic or positive statistic is that 
by this time in the flu season, we will we would have had a number of pediatric deaths due to flu. This year, we have not. We've had one recorded death, according to the CDC. So that could change. We could have a late flu season, but we are kind of seeing what they've seen in some countries in the Southern Hemisphere, where their flu season really never came to be. And it could be, now there's lots of conjecture about why, it could be that all the masking and social distancing and other non-pharmaceutical interventions that we've all been living with could have been enough to sort of tamp down the flu. It could be the travel restrictions and the fact that the globe is not traveling place to place, carrying the flu from country to country, and that could be part of it. We don't really know. Researchers will be teasing that apart. But we do know that we are seeing something similar to what some of the countries in the Southern Hemisphere saw during their flu season, which is so far very little. So fingers crossed that this continues. That would be a a good thing for all these overwhelmed hospitals and for all of us, you know, potentially coming down with the flu. Well, Trina, cautiously optimistic around the flu season. That's something to think about. But there's something else going on, and many of our listeners may have seen the news over basically the last two weeks about different variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And you may have heard about the UK variant. We're now hearing about the South African variant. So kind of on our science for non-science major segment, What should we be thinking about the variant and what are we hearing from the researcher and science community? Yeah, yeah. So I would say in this case, there are two ways to look at the UK variant. And one way is to look at it from the lens of public health. And the other is to look at it from the lens of science. And so from the lens of science, you really have a lack of consensus by virologists looking at this variant as to whether it is really more transmissible than other variants that are out there. And that is the concern. So the concern is that this particular variant is more contagious than the other than other variants and so therefore we should be more worried about it etc 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 the science community says the jury is still out on that that we do not have enough evidence to conclude that this is indeed more transmissible than other variants out there so that's one piece of this and science is sort of working through trying to figure that out and eventually we will have enough evidence on one side or the other to say whether it is indeed more transmissible. On the other end, you have public health. And public health does not have sort of the luxury of waiting for science to figure this out definitively. And so public health can act more quickly. And so that's why we see, based on sort of this more thin evidence that it's more transmissible, we see public health authorities taking actions that are assuming that, yes, it is more transmissible. And that's why we saw actions taken by European countries stopping trade from the UK briefly. You heard probably over the holidays about the huge truck backup in the UK where trucks weren't being allowed to cross into Europe. And you have various actions being taken in the UK. You have various actions being taken all over. You have in the United States, some sort of surveillance being put up to try to figure out how widely this variant is going around in the United States. And so This is happening on the side of public health. And I think that's important to sort of talk about those two differently because the science is still, you know, not settled on this, but yet public health is acting as if in some cases that it is more transmissible because if we wait until we know for sure, you know, then you sort of lost your edge in terms of dealing with it from a public health perspective. 
One piece of this that I think also is worth noting is that the United States really does not have a good network set up already to test for this and figure out whether we have a lot of this variant in the population already. We have no genetic testing surveillance system on a large scale, on a large national scale in our country. And so researchers here and there and labs here and there might pick it up. And that's why we're having these reports here and there in this state and that state of the variant being found. And almost always this is being found in folks who have not been traveling anywhere. And so we know that it's circulating in the community and that we're only finding almost by happenstance. And so one thing that some of the public health folks have been calling for and scientists have been calling for for a while is a real national surveillance system so that we can really know how this is circulating, not just this variant, but other variants. And we can have a good sort of spotlight on what's going on in our population, which we don't have right now. The UK did set up this kind of system back all the way in the spring with some really kind of meager amount of money. If you really think about the amount of money that's spent on the pandemic so far, they put together a real national comprehensive system to look at variants almost in real time. And that's why they picked it up very quickly and were able to sort of gather a lot of information about this variant in a short period of time and now know sort of where it's spreading, what region it's spreading in, how much is it spreading, that kind of thing. And so that's what we really don't have yet in the United States that we will hope will be set up sometime in the future. Well, I think that helps provide a lot of clarity. I especially liked your discussion around kind of the interplay between the the, the scientific view of it versus the public health view and, and where it also comes together. I want to turn our attention, though, to something that's on everyone's mind right now. And in fact, there's a lot of information floating around about the vaccine distribution and, and how it's going in the U.S. And I thought maybe you could provide our listeners with just a few nuggets of of what's happening with the distribution and and maybe some things we need to be looking for over the next few weeks. I think many people are surprised by how slowly the vaccine distribution is going. Those of us who have been looking at this whole sort of development to getting the shots into arms continuum are not necessarily surprised because the hardest part, perhaps you could argue, or one of the hard parts is that last mile, getting the shots into arms. We wrote a paper about this in HRI that we published back in the fall about some of the logistical puzzles that have to be solved in order to do this. And what we're seeing right now is sort of the machine kind of getting up into gear and slowly cranking up. And so we do see more shots into arms every day, pretty much. But we are still, if you look at the country and how many are being done each day, we really are looking at a long, long rollout. As of today, so we're in the early part of January, we're getting about 700,000 people vaccinated a day. And even though that sounds like quite a few, it will take 300 or more days just to get to 66% of the population vaccinated at that rate. We really need to be somewhere around 3 million a day to really get this done quickly enough so that we can all kind of move on with our lives before the end of the year. So there's a lot being discussed about how to get this rolling more quickly. And so even there have been some suggestions that we should, by the Biden administration, that we should be releasing all the vaccine doses, that more people get their first dose quickly. There is discussions about opening up prioritization so that the prioritization is not as complicated as it is right now. 
I think one of the big challenges that we're hearing from healthcare providers is that every one of them has to sort of reinvent the process to get their folks vaccinated. This is not like a regular flu vaccine campaign that that is run every year and every provider, you know, engages in. This is a lot more complicated. And because of that, you know, they're having to create these processes sort of out of thin air and get them going. And that is taking some time. I think there's a hope that once those are up and running and things get more efficient and so there's troubleshooting done that that we will reach a much higher rate of people being vaccinated every day. But as of now, you know, we're really looking at something like 300 or more days before we get enough people vaccinated that we reach that sort of herd immunity position, or at least we are sure of it. There is some proportion of the population that will have natural immunity because they've been sick with COVID-19. They've been infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus and they have natural immunity. And then there'll be a whole population that have been vaccinated. And then there'll be some overlap where you'll have people vaccinated who have already had the virus. And so how long that all takes to reach a position of herd immunity where the virus is, you know, sort of dying out is unknown. But we're really looking at right now quite a slow start that we all hope will get a little bit more efficient in the days ahead. Yeah, and I think the the phrase a slow start, I, I think that, that does resonate with people. One thing that it may be out there that's really not being fed into kind of the models yet or the runway are other vaccines being approved. And, and so far we have two under emergency use authorization, but there's actually others in the pipeline. So any comment on, on that and how that may affect the rollout? Yeah, so we do have other vaccine candidates in the pipeline, including one where we expect results from their phase three trial sometime in the next, I'd say, four to six weeks. And then once they apply for an EUA, we expect that that could be granted sometime, you know, in the spring. And that means that that particular vaccine will be ready for people to be vaccinated with, you know, sometime then, and that will help with supply of vaccine. This particular one that I'm talking about is a single shot. So that is an improvement. You don't have to worry about making sure that millions of people come back for that second shot, which is the case with the two that we have now. It's also stable at room temperature, so it doesn't need to be refrigerated with ultra-cold freezing like one of the vaccines that we have now. So that simplifies things. So we're waiting on that, and that will increase supply. But I think one of the conundrums right now is that it's not even necessarily a supply problem. It is a just logistical getting people vaccinated vaccinated quickly. And we are not seeing that happen. In fact, there are sporadic reports of vaccines expiring and being tossed away because they're no longer able to be used, never having gone into anyone's arm. And so hopefully these things will be ironed out. We will be able to use up all of the supply that we have from the current vaccines and that these other vaccines will come online and that we won't have a problem with supply or the logistics. And we can get our population vaccinated as quickly as possible and really make a dent in the pandemic. Well, Trina, I think you've made it very clear that there's a lot of variables here. It's one of the reasons why we'll be continuing to cover this through our podcast series, because there's always new information, new scientific evidence, potentially new vaccines coming on the market, and new best practices being formed around distribution. So very, very important, very dynamic environment. So today, listeners, we covered a bit about healthcare jobs and what we're seeing on the provider side, and actually kind of a surprise that there were 
fewer jobs created in this December than there were the year before, even though we have a pandemic going on. A bit about the flu season and what we're seeing there, as well as the UK variant of the virus. And Trina took us home with a bit about what's going on with the vaccine distribution and some of the challenges around it and the way forward. So Trina, thank you once again for providing us and updating us on all of that information. If you'd like to get more information on some of the items that we're talking about, everything is available on pwc.com forward slash HRI. Thank you for joining us once again with Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.